Welcome to another Quantum Conversation, brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and I invite you to sit back as we enter the Quantum Realm, that space of the greater part of you. It is your connection to infinite possibilities, infinite potential, and infinite mastery. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I am excited to share in this conversation today with TJ Woodward. He is one who has been on stage with Michael Beckwith and Marianne Williamson and Gabor Mate and and many other leaders in the healing arts industry. And today we're tackling a topic of mental health and addiction and really what are the underlying causes? We're gonna get to the root of that for true healing once and for all. TJ is an author as well, and he is an inspirational speaker. We are so glad that he's with us. He also is the creator of the Conscious Recovery Method. Conscious Recovery. TJ, hi, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being here. I already love everything that we've introduced as possible topics. So looking forward to the conversation. Yes. All right. So here we are. We have seen in the past few years in the collective, it seems things are becoming more present about mental health, or it certainly is getting a lot of attention. So as we go into this conversation, I first want to ask you, to share a little bit about your story and how you got here to working with this uh, addiction therapy, conscious recovery, the method. How did that begin? What's your story? Well, you know, I'm going to have to go all the way back to the beginning, as I always do, because I think that um, hearing where you are at, who your audience is, the first part of this story is going to be kind of a, an, a given for your audience and for you, but for some people, it's a new concept. And that concept is very simple. We come into the world as whole and perfect, infinite spiritual beings. And then we get programmed by the world to believe that we're something other than that. So I, I like to start with that. And my own story is a, is a very, very visceral memory of that, remembering being open, loving, present, feeling like the luckiest kid on planet earth. And, you know, this is a lot maybe for a two, three, four or five-year-old, but it's exactly how I felt. I remember just being mesmerized by everything in the world, the sunshine, the flowers, the hummingbirds. I don't think we even had hummingbirds, but whatever kind of birds we had in Indiana back in the day. But I remember feeling so present and open. And then I remember a profound experience of that changing. And for me, it was a, a single event that I can recall where I closed my heart. And I can look back and see what led to that. You know, it's true that we come into the world as these infinite beings. And I started being programmed. Um, I heard people saying things that were racist, that were sexist, that were homophobic. I mean, the list can go on and on. The first time I saw war on TV, I just felt like it was a violation to my spirit. And my my mechanism, I guess, if you will, um, or what I've come to call a brilliant strategy was to close my heart. And at age seven, that moment that I can recall, I actually remember the physical sensation of my heart closing. And I decided some really big things about myself in the world. I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. And the world isn't safe. From that moment, 
going forward, I was walking around with that as my vibration. And of course, we know that because of that vibration, I kept experiencing that over and over in the world. See, I am broken. See, I'm not lovable. See, I am damaged. See, the world isn't safe. Um, drugs and alcohol came into my story around age 13 or 14, and it brought me some relief from that. And then it crossed a line to where it was causing a lot of problems for me. And I felt very spiritually bankrupt. I got sober really young. Um, well, I guess it's all relative, but just before my 21st birthday, ironically, so in 1986, um, I could talk for a, a lot longer, but I'll pause there. That's kind of the story that brought me into my own journey of reconnecting with my true nature. And now it's my, um, it's interesting. I almost said obligation. I don't feel like it's an obligation. I feel like it's an opportunity to share this with the world. Thank you for sharing that because your own journey is part of the lesson and, and, and the gift. And I find it incredible that here you are at age seven. For most people, that is a magical, mm. magical time for women. We, you know, there's a book out there, Reviving Ophelia, mm. where, um, and when we do hypnosis and things, we take people back to that eight-year-old child, that seven-year-old child, yeah. where we were so present and alive in our spirit, you know, unless there was some other, even if we had problems in the household, even younger than that, at that point, we were still solid with who we are. We knew who we are. We were in touch with who we are and we're confident and buoyant and um, speak our mind freely. But then around that age, seven or eight, like yourself, we hear the comments of the outside world and I think I join you when I was that little girl and you look out and you see like a big truck spewing black smoke out. Yeah. That just didn't make sense either. And, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up watching the Vietnam War on TV. You too. And that just yeah. didn't. It was like, wow. So you said that you could feel your heart close. Can you expand on that a little bit more? What happened? Did you just get depressed? Was it depression? Did you give up? What what were the details of that? I think the felt sense, I mean, it's hard to know what was happening in my seven-year-old mind, but in my spirit and in the energy, the energy felt like a closure, right? It felt like something came, it felt like something outside of me came in to protect me, honestly. Um, it wasn't a conscious choice at seven. I wasn't sitting there saying, wow, the world is really traumatic. I think I'll close my heart. It was just a moment where I could feel like I, it's almost like I felt my shoulders come in and there's this wall and it's almost like there was some something that came in to protect me. And the truth is it did protect me. Um, of course, it also protected me from the loving connection I truly desired. Um, and it's interesting you're talking about seven because um, I've reflected back and looked at these pivotal moments that happened every seven years. At age seven is when my heart closed. Around 14 is when I started drinking and using. At 21, I got sober. I could go on to 28. There's a lot of things that happened in these seven-year cycles. There wow. probably is something to that. But for me, it was more of a feeling than it was a thought because you know, I look back and our brains aren't even necessarily developed enough at age seven to understand everything that's happening. So it felt more like an energy, an energy of restriction and constriction. Yes, that is the classic heart wall, yeah. a heart wall. And so 
then your journey and your recovery, that's actually leading to what you did now. When did you come back to spirituality or to that true sense of who you were? What was that in the process? Such a great question. Somewhere around two years sober, maybe 18 months, somewhere in that era um, or that period, I actually found myself suicidal because I hadn't really addressed anything but the not drinking. And, you know, this was in 1986, 87, 88, around those years. Um, the paradigm for recovery at that time was just don't drink. Your life is a miracle. Now go help someone else. And I had been doing that with a lot of success. I felt happier than I'd ever been. I felt like I was finally building a community. I mean, some of the basics, like going to work and not getting, I was almost fired from my job. And then at one year sober, I won this prestigious award of the youngest person to ever receive it. So there was this like sudden flip. But what happened, I would say 18 months to two years is all of the underlying root causes of the addictive behavior hadn't been addressed. And so I found myself suicidal. And I met a woman, her name is Mary Helen. Um, she was a devotee of Sai Baba's. She had been a, a student of Eastern thought. She was this incredible enlightened being like I had never experienced before. And she kind of took me under her wing uh, and took me on a journey of returning home. Um, I discovered unity at that time. I started reading all kinds of amazing books. Um, that were really pointing me back to myself and everything that I was encountering and reading and experiencing weren't necessarily new information. It was like, oh yeah, I remember who I am. So those years became the foundation of why with conscious recovery, the foundational principle is underneath all addictive behavior is an essential self that's whole and perfect. Okay, good. So what... Um... What are, what did you find subconsciously as the root causes in your own journey? What was that for you? I know it's different for everyone, but it's really things that we just prefer not to look at. It's, and, and was it from the childhood or maybe even past lives? Yeah. And it, it could have been all of that. It was certainly things from childhood, but you named it perfectly. It was what was living in the unconscious or subconscious. And that's truly what I had been running from for years with drugs and alcohol or all kinds of other behavior. Um, with conscious recovery, which I'm sure we'll talk about when I started that and why I started that, but I identify the root causes of addiction as unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. That came right out of my own experience. Those were the things that were living in the unconscious that hadn't been resolved, that created this belief in my own brokenness rather than a knowing in my own essential beingness. So um, I'm, I'm careful to say, as you said, there are a lot of different factors that lead to addiction. There's physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. I kind of live in the emotional and spiritual room. So when I talk about these three root causes, I'm really talking about from those rooms. There might be genetic predisposition. There's brain science that's showing us that what's happening in the brain. I really focus on those two rooms. And in that way, I see those as the root causes. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, you know, um, I just want to say kudos to you for overcoming that and for doing it in a conscious way. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, um, you know, we're seeing mental health. Um, so when we see adults, then with these issues, they haven't dealt with those 
those issues, those problems. So then the conscious recovery method, the unresolved trauma, um, you know, I think we can each sit and look at some people in our lives or maybe even our own lives and see how this could be beneficial, helping, helping people with their unresolved trauma. Because if we don't resolve the trauma, as you said, we put the heart wall up and then we avoid the pain when it comes up, drugs, alcohol, and all that. So the conscious recovery method, how did you start that? Well, I, around the age 40, I had kind of an existential crisis, which was really spirit saying to me, it's time to do something different in the world. And this came through a series of events that led me to going back to school um, at Unity Institute and studying um, spiritual leadership and spiritual, uh, you know, becoming a spiritual leader essentially and started writing my books. I did not think I was gonna work in the addiction treatment space. That's not, that was not my plan, but that's what spirit kept, you know, revealing to me. So I had written my first book, Conscious Being, that came out in 2015. Um, and around that time, I started, I had started working in the field already in 2008 in addiction treatment, and I had been developing these groups that were having such a profound impact on people because it was really about this idea of our own, really recognizing the wholeness and returning to that. And so this, this, I had started an independent new thought center in San Francisco at that same time. And that I thought was my path, but this work with recovery just kept pulling me. And I think if I really look at what it was that was pulling me as I was seeing people suffering and being told messages in some ways that they were broken or damaged, some of the therapeutic models, some of the recovery models are saying you're selfish, you're self-centered, there's something wrong with you and you need to, you know, basically remove your character defects so that you can become a good person. And it was heartbreaking to me because my own journey of Mary Helen seeing something in me that I had lost touch with and reconnecting with that or becoming aware of that inherent wholeness had such a profound impact on me that as I started sharing it with clients in 2008, 9, 10, 11 in treatment, I saw them waking up and it just pulled me because I thought, where better to meet people than at this time of, of crisis, really, um, whether, whether it's addiction or a mental health concern, where there's a moment that they realize something needs to change. And so it was born out of that. And in, in our large collective, we can see, again, that the, there is a need for this. And so I love how it's the conscious recovery method. Really beautiful. And Mary Helen, who connected you, you know, on her path with the gurus, yeah. how magical and beautiful is that? That is the calling, really. That That is your path then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what would you, this is always a, an interesting one, because sometimes people reject the therapy, the old therapeutic models that you spoke of. I don't want to... Um, discredit those but there's a pace that is not as quick as mm. what we're talking about here how do you describe the therapeutic models traditional therapeutic models with the spiritual conscious models well i love this question and like you i'm always careful to say these models are really useful and not but right so some of the traditional therapeutic models have 
helped millions of people. Some of the traditional um, 12 step support groups have helped millions of people. And we're saying, in addition to that, what about this? Right. And so I know in my own experience, I went to talk therapy for many, many years, and it was all about the mind. Let me figure out the patterns. When did this begin? I understood where the trauma was. I understood the patterns that I had developed around relationships. All of that was an intellectual understanding, and yet nothing seemed to change. It wasn't until I really embarked on this sp deeper spiritual journey of excavating um, both the subconscious and unconscious beliefs and ideas that were kept really kept me feeling stuck, while also re, you know, having this experience of reconnecting with or becoming aware of my essential beingness that's never been harmed. And that twofold process, we can have these instantaneous results, right? And so, you know, someone asked me once, can someone get conscious recovery, the book and the workbook, maybe the online course, and can they get sober and stay sober on conscious recovery alone? And my answer is, I hope not. Because really, there's so many different facets and there's not one answer, right? So conscious recovery is intended to be something that can be layered on to traditional therapy or traditional sport group support groups. And it's really an invitation home to our true nature. Well, thank you. I love that. I really do. I, again, um, I just think of, you know, people in my life who are no longer on the planet, stepdad and, and all of that, mm. where they didn't have that access, they were reaching for it. And, and maybe later in their life, they were able to wake up a little bit, but this just seems like it would really accelerate the entire process, open hearts once again, really returning one to self-love, returning to the love as we are, as you said. So when your heart opened again, what was that like? What age about were you? Was that your recovery process where your heart opened? Was that with Mary Ellen? Yeah, it was. I mean, I've, I have had several experiences. I mean, um, that the early years, if you will, going to Unity, and I went to India with her to stay at Amici's ashram. Um, I like to say before she was famous, which is kind of a joke, but also kind of true. It was a very small ashram in Southern India at the time. Now it's thousands of people. Um, that was in, I believe, 1988. No, that was in the early 90s, but I had met her in 1988. So this, this journey started at that age, and I had these ex incredible experiences. And then there was also this lifelong work of, of returning to my wholeness. Um, and as I said, around age 40, when I had this deeper calling, and when I say deeper, it was for me, it was deeper because it was an awareness of wanting to share what I had received with the world. My whole world fell apart. I lost my business. My partner left me. I lost my house. I lost my car. I filed bankruptcy. I mean, it was a dark period, but I understood um, exactly why. And that is because this, this knowing of who I've come here to be was so present for me. So that was another experience. And then I went back to India in 2006 and had this profound experience of oneness where I understood at a very deep cellular level who we really are. And it was without any question that, that I had touched reality. And that experience lasted for a couple of hours. Um, my ego did come back. 
I came back into like what we call relative reality or what some of us call reality. But there was something that shifted permanently in that moment where I understood who and what we really are. And at that point, that's when everything started to take off for me because I thought, there are so many of us on planet earth now that are aware of this and it used to be for a few masters and now it's for so many of us to know and to share including you i feel that yes and thank you for sharing because um it is what um it's it, it's it's us stepping into our roles now um the pain that we go through um, is again the gift in what we're here to do and how we can assist others so Beautiful. You have some courses that are available. I'm going to put the link in our Zoom chat. We're going to put it wherever this, wherever people are watching this video as well. And of course, it's here on this webpage. We're going to talk about those courses, but I think one way is to take some questions. So I'm going to ask our Zoom audience, if you have a question or you know someone who needs TJ's help or assistance, um, this is the place to ask for that. So I'm going to go on over to our YouTube channel, and I see that we've got Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Jesse says, my partner has been dealing with dermatomania, skin picking, for the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. Can you please help me point, can you point me to the right direction to help him or the partner? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for all of this, it's like, how do we find the right professional that we can really have a deep connection with? Because, you know, my kind of my primary work now is going into addiction treatment programs and mental health facilities and training clinicians on my model. And that model is about how to create deep attunement and connection. So there's not this short answer. The answer is, you know, for your partner to find someone where they feel really comfortable and safe because... For me, safety is the first step in recovery, whether that's a mental health concern or an addiction or any other kind of um, issue, including physical you know, issues that we're working with and dealing with. And that can start externally with a safe relationship like it did for me with Mary Helen, like it did for me when I went back to therapy. And um, Ken, my therapist, who was an engaged Buddhist, I worked with him for seven years and had profound awakenings through the process of being seen. So I think that's a starting point. Um, for me, community has always been a big part of it. Um, it was always about, in the beginning, I used to say finding a community of like-minded people. And now I'm really aware that it's more a community of people who are dedicated to this journey home or this journey of knowing who we really are. So, I, I, you know, find someone your partner can connect with and then also whatever community can be built because the symptom is not the problem, right? And that's where a lot of the therapeutic models, we just focus on the symptoms. The Western medical model is what's wrong, what are your symptoms and how do we eradicate them? And I understand that. What we're talking about today is getting down to the root of what's actually driving that. Obviously, I can't know that for your partner, but to create a safe space where they can actually start to explore that for themselves is key. Okay. Thank you for that. Mm. All right. And so um, we talked a little bit about your courses and we can go over those a little bit more in each depth because they seem very helpful and very spiritual and conscious for everyone who has people in their lives that can work with this. But there's also techniques that will help us break free of destructive patterns from these unconscious beliefs. K 
Can you go over some of those? Like, for example, how would you identify first that there is an unconscious belief? How do you get to the root of that when you're working with someone, for example? Yeah, sometimes people are really aware of it. And sometimes people say, I don't have any of these. I don't even know what you're talking about, right? So we start with looking at the patterns in our life. Um, for me, it was relationships. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm in this relationship. The fourth person, the exact same pattern. I thought this person would be different, right? If we're in these work environments where it's it feels really different and then it turns into, it's really popular now, we're in a toxic work environment, right? Or we're in a relationship with a narcissist. These are kind of the things we hear now. Um, we want to look at not from a, a place of, a lot of times we blame the world and then sometimes we shift to blaming ourselves. And so that's not what we're talking about here. We're looking at <clears throat> what is it within me that is causing me to continue to choose these unfulfilling work and, and you know, situations, these relationships. Uh, maybe it's my relationship with money or my relationship with my physical health. And then we look at what might be under that. Once we get in touch with a core false belief, which is what I call them, and I like to add the word false, because a lot of times we hear people saying core beliefs or core memories. I say core false beliefs because they're lies we've picked up about ourselves. One really important thing when we work with these is most of us, not all of us, but most of us develop these really, really young when we didn't even have the cognitive ability to make sense of what was happening. So, you know, the child mind, going back to that seven, eight, nine-year-old, we're very concrete. If someone's mad, we must be wrong. It, it doesn't have to make sense because that's what happens in our brain development so we bury these deep in the unconscious. And then the issue is once we're in adults, maybe we're in therapy, maybe we're in recovery, maybe we're in a spiritual community. Sometimes we think we should change the narrative or talk ourselves out of the beliefs. And I actually have a really different approach, which I'm happy to go into. Yes, yes. Um, there are some questions coming in. And, right. you know, um, I, I want you to go into those further, you know, more, but um, we'll go into some of these questions. There's some heaviness going on, um, particularly around drugs, fentanyl and all that stuff, Yeah, mental health, but we're going to get to that. I want you to continue your thread of thought there. Yeah, thank you. So a lot of times when we get in touch with um, these core false beliefs, we end up hearing something like change your thinking or change your narrative. Uh, in my journey, when I discovered new thought, for example, in the late 80s, I discovered affirmations and I and I thought, oh, my gosh, my thinking creates my reality. This was revolutionary because at the time I thought the world was happening to me. Um, what I'm saying is, how do we actually get down and change it at a very deep level? Because it's actually not a thought, even though we call it a core false belief. It's really a frequency. It's a vibration. It's an energy that we're holding. Energy is trapped somewhere in our body. So for in my journey, um, when I was yeah, in my 20s, I believed very deeply I was unlovable. My solution to that was, please love me, please love me, please love me. So I kept trying to get in all these relationships. But because I was literally vibrating with I'm not lovable, I would walk into a room and choose the person that would confirm that. They weren't even, they weren't bad people. I, I found myself in a series of relationships with very unavailable people, not because they were bad people, but because that was the core false belief. 
So one of the techniques that has helped me immensely is what I call living in the question. So rather than thinking, I shouldn't think this because that's what I did. I, oh, I shouldn't. Of course, I'm lovable. I try to talk myself out of it. Instead, we ask some open-ended questions. One might be, when did I first start believing this? And just kind of explore that. What does it feel like in my body when I believe it? What would it feel like in my body if I were free of this? What are the infinite possibilities right now? What is love anyway? Right. So these kind of questions are meant for us to start to expand our consciousness, not necessarily find the answer. If, you know, a lot of us, especially in the United States, are find the answer, find the answer. Our entire education system is know the answer. So we're inviting ourselves to really explore and live in the unknown and look at like our consciousness expanding as we ask these questions. Um, I remember early in my journey, I was on the treadmill. I had a Walkman. This is how long ago it was with a cassette. And I was listening to a talk from Marianne Williamson. And she said, it's really popular to say, why do I keep attracting unavailable people? When I change it to why am I attracted to them? Everything changes. And I almost fell off the treadmill at that point because I kept asking myself, why do I keep getting in these relationships? I actually ask another question, and that is, what is it I'm wanting them to be available for? A lot of times we have our umbilical cord in our hand trying to plug into someone or something to feel whole. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it doesn't really ever work, right? So it's this interesting balance of doing our own work of healing while also being in relationships because those actually are part of our healing process as well. Okay. All right. Really beautiful. Um, yeah. So, you know, as you're talking, you are taking this to addiction and mental health, but it, it, um, this return to our soul self is important for every aspect of our lives. Like you mentioned, abundance. Some of us with unconscious beliefs, it affects our money. It affects our relationships. It affects our health. And so kudos for you for going into the, I'd like to say the trenches of, <laughs> of, of that, because it can get really, you know, when, um, when people are so deep into it that thoughts of suicide come up that's some pretty serious stuff and i know some healers who say if you are feeling suicidal i'm not the one for you mm. but you are you are someone that's taken the bull by the horns and you've had success with that you've seen people pull out of it is that is that the case you've you've seen the power of this yeah, and I am in no way going to say that I have the one answer if someone's suicidal. But what I can say, or what I can say for sure, and what I've experienced is something that's so profoundly simple, and that is the more people reconnect or become aware of who they really are. I, I use the word reconnect with our essential self. We're not really ever disconnected, but bringing that awareness to who we really are is something that's so profound for people that they aren't in the process of wanting to kill themselves. In my experience, when people believe they're broken, they act broken in the world and then they feel more broken. And that's a, that's what we could call a shame spiral. I believe there's something wrong with me. I find myself in behaviors that confirm that, relationships that confirm that. 
it's no wonder people are feeling suicidal when they're in that process. And then we look at what has happened in the world for the last few years. It just adds to that. And then we look at the Reddit, this availability of fentanyl that's killing people very, very quickly. It is the perfect storm for what we're seeing in the world. There's not one specific answer, but I can tell you that fighting and getting rid of fentanyl is not the answer. It's part of it, of course, but it's not the one and only answer because there's a reason there's a reason people are longing to check out. And I, I'm inviting us to collectively ask the question, what is that about? Yes. Uh, wow. I feel like crying right here. Mm. Um, the young kids, you know, uh, here you are in, in your own life. You were that age. Um, and so to see uh, someone so young with the whole life ahead of them, yeah. Checking out in that way. Wow. Okay. So we have a question in our YouTube audience and this is it. Um, it. This is from Kathleen. My son had four overdoses on fentanyl in November, is mentally ill, on probation, and currently in jail again for not checking into probation. I pray for his well-being continuously. Can you help? Yeah, I, there are so many layers to this. So I want to start with my heart. Just, I feel it as you're, as you're, as you're reading what she's saying, because it's the experience of so many of us, right? We have someone in our life who we love and we see that they're beautiful people, but for whatever reason, they're on this self-destructive pattern. The old school model I want to, I'm going to start with what the old school model is because we're so familiar with it, right? The old school model is tough love, set boundaries, um, don't enable them. These are the things we hear. And I understand that. And there's wisdom to that. What I'm offering is to the best of our ability, can we hold and behold the part of them, the part of your, your child um, regardless of what age, because we're all children of the universe, Right to behold for them that which they can't see for themselves. And keeping our hearts open in that way can be very painful. And I understand that. And I don't think anyone can do that perfectly. Um, one thing in my experience is that oftentimes the people that we're closest to are the hardest for us to help. So bringing in others, you, you said you pray for, the, for him all the time. I'm holding the infinite possibility for them. That can sound really esoteric to some people, but there's a place where, and this is, you know, this, this, I don't mean for this to be provocative, but there's also a part of me that is invited to surrender the outcome, right? People die sometimes and it's very painful to watch, especially if it's our child or someone that we love, but there's something in the clinging to, they have to be okay that somehow creates even more of it. And it's a very nuanced conversation that we could talk about for another hour, but um, I would also invite what support are you getting for yourself? Because it is really painful to be a witness to this. Um, that's a few things that come to mind for me in this conversation. Yeah, and so do you work with, or your courses, you've got some beautiful courses that help people with this. Can it help the the people in the lives with these ones? I'm going to say yes, because again, as we behold that vibration for the person, seeing them in the highest aspect, 
hopefully that will influence. Does it work that way as well? So that it's it's like, you know, you have Al-Anon for Alcoholics Anonymous. Is this sort of the same thing? Is it a is it a one one stop shop for all aspects dealing with a person who's addicted or mentally ill? Well, again, conscious recovery is meant to be a supplement to the other things that a person is doing. So maybe, you know, attending an Al-Anon meeting to build community is really important. My hope is that conscious recovery could offer another resource of a reminder, right? Because um, when someone is in that behavior, I can guarantee you they feel broken on some level. Um, it's just in a hundred percent of the people I've worked with, you know, I have worked with a few people that say, no, I don't have any unresolved trauma or disconnection or shame. I just love what it feels like when I use. Right. So there are a few people who that's where they're, what they're aware of, but as we start to explore, there's something much deeper here. Um, we do have a conscious recovery workbook for teens. There are some resources for family members and loved ones. The main thing is connection and community, though. So, um, you know, of course, the courses will help. But there's also something so powerful in building a community of people for, to support not only your loved one, but you yourself as well. Okay, very good. All right. And so we hope that, uh, Kathleen, that you have that community of support of people that you can go to or getting help yourself. So. Um, when we're in the healing process, like for example, um, all right, I'll use someone that I know, uh, an acquaintance, and the person is aware of the underlying cause. It was trauma. Yeah. When he was a very young kid, his mother was killed. Yeah. And so he can't even hear thunder without going into fear. And sometimes he'll just be... Um, set off and who knows what sets him off so he's aware of this unresolved issue of the emotions but yet there's no healing that has taken place yet right what step in the process is he in and what does he need to do well um a wise person once said there are three steps to healing awareness awareness and awareness right and it sounds like he's in the I'm aware of the pattern phase, which is what I shared about in my journey. I spent all that time in talk therapy. It was really useful. I understood the patterns and where they came from. The deeper healing work for me is really an integration of the inner child. Um, with conscious recovery, I do some of that work in the workbooks. But this is something um, with this type of trauma that I would recommend going to a trauma therapist, but someone who really understands that the deep healing is about holding space for that young part of ourselves. Um, so, you know, attachment wounds, we come into the world and we need love and connection from at least one caregiver. Sometimes we get that, or in this case, maybe, you know, he felt really connected to his mother and then she died. This is a traumatic event, but we don't heal that as an adult. We don't talk ourselves out of it. In other words, you know, you said, you know, thunder elicits a response. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk in his book, the body keeps the score. I believe this is where the quote is from. He says, trauma doesn't show up as a memory. It shows up as a reaction. And so much of the, so many therapeutic models and so much of the support looks at the, the, the actual symptom. Oh, I hear thunder. Let's have some self self-soothing tools. Let's have some tools of how you talk to yourself. All of that is useful, but there's a place this, maybe it's the third awareness. And that is 
allowing that young child, whether they were four, five, six, seven, to actually feel that which wasn't felt is such a huge part of it. I remember working with a client who um, his father died. I believe he was seven or eight. He had two sisters. So it was his mother and his two sisters and him. And at the funeral, multiple people came up to him and said, you need to be strong for your sisters and mom. Now you're the man of the family to this little child. So the work with him was let's allow your seven, let's create enough safety for the seven, eight or nine-year-old to actually feel that to it. Cause what, what did he really need to hear? How are you? Let that child cry. Let them, let them feel an experience. Um, so many of us believe, I hear it over and over again, if I feel this, it will envelop me or I'll get stuck. But the truth is it's the not feeling it that keeps us stuck. Having support for that is important. Maybe working with a somatic therapist, someone who is aware of what's happening in the body, because it's not really about going back and re-experiencing the trauma it's about how it's alive in my body today. And that was implanted from the traumatic experience. But what's important are these core decisions and this core vibration. And again, to repeat myself, go back and allow that child to feel, but there needs to be a safe container to do that. Yes, a safe container to do that. Um, we were talking earlier as well that it, this is a good time to bring this up. Um, the the Psilocybin mushrooms has been uh, touted recently by mental health therapists as a wonderful alternative. What's going on there? Because that seems counterintuitive when you have, and, and also ayahuasca. We've heard people on this show come on and say their addiction to alcohol was resolved. And so what's happening with the expansion of consciousness from the, that plant medicine. One, I would say that there's a guide, there's a guide to help process what's going on. And what about those who are doing this for themselves? Do you have any thoughts on this whole realm? I have many thoughts about it. I think um, like any conversation, it's layered and nuanced. It's not this or that. It's let's let's sort of unpack that and look at it. Um, plant medicine, without a doubt, is going to and has already helped a lot of people. What does it help people do? It helps people break down the barriers that were created. If I look at my own story, um, I, I haven't done plant medicine, so I want to be clear that I don't have firsthand experience, but what I've heard from people and what I've witnessed is there's a moment where it can take that wall down and we can remember who we are. Um, it's interesting because my actual drug of choice in 1985 was ecstasy and it was just getting street use. I was actually at the birthplace of it. That's a whole other story. Um, but it was actually used in a therapeutic setting first. And then a therapist brought it to the nightclub, this nightclub that I was going to, and that's when it started getting recreational use. So the drug itself is a wonderful thing. It was used for primarily people in couples, couples work, where what ecstasy would do is it would, or MDMA, um, it would allow the barriers to come down so that people could have an authentic heart connection and a conversation. But you can hear in my story, I got addicted to it, right? So um, it's not like, um, you know, all of these plant medicines are good or bad. It's how are we going to work with them? Because I think there is great value 
Um, I know in my industry, and when I say my industry, I mean behavioral health, there will be people who will either misuse that or think it's the one and only answer. There isn't one and only answer, but plant medicine is showing that combined with other work can be incredibly useful. Um, I sat down with someone who um, is starting to work with plant medicines, I'll put it that way, in a, in a different country doing retreats. And he said, I read Conscious Recovery. How have you not done plant medicine? And I said, well, say more. Well, everything that you came to and that you write about in Conscious Recovery is exactly what people are experiencing when they do ayahuasca or they do these other plant medicines. So it's not the it's not the medicine that's bringing the experience. The experience is already there. The medicine quite possibly is taking away any barriers that we have. Here's the big issue. Let's say we go to do a one week ayahuasca retreat. Many people do that, right? Some of, some of my good friends do it and they love it. Profound experiences. What do we do after that is going to be really important because having this intense experience might feel really great. But then what are we left with? We have a, a, an expanded awareness of the nature of reality or who we are. We understand the trauma. We see it. But I think how do we integrate that back into daily life is going to, it, it is really important. And it's going to really continue to be important as this becomes more prevalent. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. And speaking of thunder, we've got a thunderstorm outside. Oh, wow. Maybe we'll hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can still hear okay, yeah? Yes. Good, all right. So here, we have Jesse now who joined our Zoom. Jesse, I'm going to allow you to talk. It'll be audio only. We somewhat touched upon the answer to your question. Again, this is Jesse with a partner who has been dealing with skin picking. Yeah. Jesse, if you're with us, you can unmute. Um. We'll give you a moment to unmute if you want to ask your question or interface with TJ. So, all right, no response yet. So we're going to move on. But again, Jesse, you can type in your question in chat again or unmute yourself and we'll see you. All right. So when we tune into our hearts and our heart space, do you have a particular process that one can do? maybe on a daily basis to feel this connection, to reconnect. Yeah. There are, for me, it's it's kind of a twofold process. And under each of these sort of umbrellas, there are many different techniques. One is making contact with or acknowledging or cultivating a relationship with the essential self. And the other is what needs to be unlearned, right? Which we kind of talked about. So let's talk about this first one. The obvious one is, mindfulness and meditation, spending time in the silence and really feeling um, that energy field that we are, right? And um, sometimes if, if your mind is like mine, or maybe you were taught like I thought I was taught, which is the intention of meditation is to quiet the mind. And I have discovered, especially in the beginning, that it didn't work. So I, I hear people say all the time, I can't meditate. Well, let's talk about what meditation is. Well, I'm supposed to sit down and get quiet for 20 minutes. And sometimes the mind can just be really active. Um, Pema Chodron, who is a wonderful Buddhist teacher, said the intention of meditation is not to quiet the mind, it's to witness it. 
And that really is an ancient teaching, right? I, he I heard that from the gurus back in, you know, in India early, witness the mind, witness the mind. And I didn't quite understood, I understand what that meant. And now I think I have somewhat of an understanding now, and that is allow the thoughts to be there, observe those thoughts and see if through that observation, they might not have a hold on us. So it's not about getting rid of them. I remember sitting down in meditation and honestly, this is what it sounded like. Shut up, shut up. You shouldn't be thinking. You need to be quiet. Be calm, right? <laughs> and so then I tried music and then I tried movement. All of that was wonderful. And then I realized that I could start to observe the thoughts. And once I got there, I could ask who or what is observing. And when I got to the who or what is observing, I had a profound experience of there's something beyond the thoughts. There's something innately it's, it's innate within me, it's within each and every one of us, that place of, we use different words, spiritual essence, Buddha nature, true self. Once I understand that, then I can allow the thoughts to come and go and start playing with the idea that I don't have to attach to them. We have tens of thousands of thoughts every day. The issue is most of us or many of us think we're supposed to do something with them. So we just allow them to come and go. And then we start to become curious. I might ask questions like, if I'm not my thoughts, who and what am I? That could be something I just take 20 minutes with. Sit under a tree, eyes closed or open, turn off all the stimulus, be with that question. Who am I really? Um, I think Eckhart Tolle says, look for the energy field beneath the skin. I love that. Just feel the energy. Spending any amount of dedicated time with that um, that connection and that awareness starts to have a profound change in the way we're viewing ourselves because it's not about getting rid of our ego or getting rid of our thoughts. It's about realizing that we're much more than that. Yes, beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those timeless tips. They're the tips that the sages know and actually quantum science, quantum physics will catch up with this and show us the power of our heart. And so what are your thoughts about this energy field that we are and the power of our heart versus our mind? Because if we're saying that these things are held in the subconscious mind, where does that leave us in our hearts, especially if we close down our hearts? So it really is being very present in the heart, would you say? Yes. Uh, it's a doorway, right? So I like to use the acronym PIES, physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual, and that we spend time in all of those rooms. Um, the, the issue for many of us is we hang out in one room more than the others. Like a lot of times, for example, men are taught you need to live in the physical and mental rooms. A lot of time women are taught you need to be emotional. You can be emotional, but don't be too smart. You know, all the, all the programs we get, um, spending time in each of those rooms can be a doorway. Ultimately, we're talking about this essence or this spiritual room, which to me is even beyond the emotions and the, it's a doorway, right? Um, we are now understanding, and when I say we, science, and I love that science is catching up to what the mystics have been saying for thousands of years. And I, I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but science wants to measure, which is really important to some degree. And now with quantum mechanics, they're saying, uh-oh, <laughs> the very act of measuring might affect the outcome. And that's so profound, right? So 
the emotional center can be a place of, of a lot, as we allow ourselves to feel, we realize that there is an energy, you know, heart math is showing us that there's an energy field from the heart. Um, there is no doubt that throughout the course of human history, we use terms like being in our heart, coming from our heart space. Um, there's also no doubt when we say, I just had a gut feeling about it. Um, science is now measuring that there's intelligence in the gut, right? And to me, that's that even deeper, that awareness of who we really are. So all four of these rooms can lead us to the experience of our true self. And the, the emotional room is an excellent one to like, to be with, to allow ourselves to feel perhaps in the end, the deepest awareness is allowing myself to be wherever I'm at at this moment allowing myself to be wherever I'm at physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Yes, because sometimes we try to bypass our emotions by saying, I shouldn't be angry, or why am I feeling this way? So the allowance is a big piece of it. I think some would get frightened that if we allow it, you could spiral downward. Yeah. Um, let's use this, for example, pity party. You know the term pity party? That's oh, yeah. a thing for anyone, anyone to have. What do you do then when you find yourself on a pity party? A pity party is really self-doubt, um, self-shame, self-disrespect. What do you do when you're feeling? Is it part of just this process of awareness of meditation coming centered? How do you get yourself out of a downward spiral of emotions or intellectual emotions? Well, this is one of my favorite topics because we've collectively decided in some way that if we feel this, as you said, we're either going to go down a spiral, we're going to get stuck there, we're going to get overwhelmed, whatever it is we believe. The Buddhist, or maybe Buddha, you know, one of my favorite memes is, I'm pretty sure I never said that, the Buddha. So... <laughs> <laughs> whether Buddha said this or not, but there's a distinction between pain and suffering, right? Um, a lot of times we use terms like negative emotions. And what I want to say is there is no such thing as a negative emotion. If you look at a pre-programmed human, which to me is two, three, four, maybe five years old, we talked about this earlier, they are very, very in touch with their emotions and they allow them to freely express, they feel them, and what do they do? They go back to their natural state, which is peace. So if a child, a young child, pre-programmed human, for example, has some kind of physical pain, they cry, they cry and they let it out. And then they come back to this sense of homeostasis, which is peace, right, who we are. Um, but we get taught that's not okay. Um, take this piece of candy. Don't cry here. If you're a boy, you get this message, a girl, this message, all the different programming we get to believe that it's not okay to feel. Um, you know, we, we, you mentioned what you all saw on TV. So I know in our era, what did we hear? Go to your room so you can stop crying. If you're going to keep crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Like these messages, right? Or here's a piece of candy or here. It's no wonder we're all addicted, right? Because we are not allowed to actually feel. So Feeling our feelings is actually an innate part of being human, but we've been programmed to believe that's not okay. And it's a very, very deep program. 
So the pity party, if you will, and this is important, it is a feeling with a thought attached to it or a story attached to it. It's not the feeling, but we get confused. I feel sad, so I'm in a pity party. No, I feel sad, and then I go into a story about I'm never going to be happy, no matter how hard I work, I'm always in this same place. That's the shame spiral. So it's that combination. One of the practices, so simple, but so powerful for me is, what would I be experiencing without the story right now? Right? Emotions are some kind of physical sensation in the body. What does sadness feel like? I don't have to figure out why I'm sad. A lot of times we think, why am I sad? And that under, underneath that is, let me figure out why I'm sad so I can get rid of it. If we were to allow ourselves to feel sad, it actually would move through us. But again, we attach a story. Am I ever going to be happy? Depression runs in my family. You know, it goes on and on and on. Um, in American culture specifically, but perhaps throughout the world, we are programmed to have a destination addiction. Once I get this partner, I will be happy. Once I get the perfect job, I will be happy. Once I get the next degree, I will be happy. And we end up chasing that throughout our lives. And then we're supposed to be happy when we retire, which is, of course, that's not going to happen, right? So coming back to allowing ourselves to be present and to feel without going into some kind of story or some kind of belief that I need to change this. As soon as we label something as negative, we want to get rid of it. And so if I say anger is bad, we say um, you need to go to anger management classes. And instead, it's what is the anger managing? Let's get curious about that. It's a brilliant strategy that probably started really early in life. And as we explore, it usually is that helped me feel safe. And so it's an automatic response. And we want to become aware of what that's about. That's the brilliant strategy. What core false belief is it attached to? Can I allow myself to feel and to start to unlearn that core false belief? Oh, beautiful. Thank you. It really is a deep dive within our own awareness yeah. to bring us into wholeness yeah. once again. And so you've got this beautiful series of courses. Again, I put the link in our Zoom chat and it will be wherever you're watching or listening to this video. But there's three courses that will absolutely help people, help people help themselves, whether it's any kind of addiction. It could be addiction to food, not just alcohol or drugs, which tends to just get lumped in one area, but it's, 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 it could be addiction to exercise. It's addiction any way that takes us away from our own heart, right? Yeah. So tell us about these courses and how people can work with them. Yeah, I've got two different opportunities here. One are the three courses that I've created that it's part of my tjwoodward.com. You can find them there. They're videos and they're writing exercises. Um, so it allows you to take these concepts. One is called the unharmable course, which is really based on the principles from conscious recovery. There's a conscious being course, which is my first book. And then there's conscious creation, which we haven't even talked about yet. So there's all three of those. But the other thing I want to talk about is a platform that I'm on called wholehearted.org. And I've created um, a couple of conscious recovery courses there, one for clinicians, 
one for individuals, for people in recovery, but there's a whole lot of other ones coming out in the next couple of months. There's one on conscious creation. But if you visit wholehearted.org, you'll see that there's a lot of amazing thought leaders on there as well. Marianne Williamson, Gabor Mate, and some other amazing people. Um, I love the guys at Wholehearted. So you can go to tjwoodward.com. I have my three courses or also wholehearted.org and you'll you'll discover all sorts of wonderful things on that site. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us and for your work in the world and for helping so many people. You are a trailblazer, a trailblazer of love in our world. And I wanna say that you're working in the trenches in this because mm. you're feeling that need. And so again, it's honorable and we really are grateful for it. So Great. is there anything else you'd like to get to today that we didn't touch on? It's a really great question. Um, you know, I, th I think we could go deeper perhaps into these three root causes and kind of explore them. Because when we think about trauma, which as you said, you didn't say it was a buzzword, but it's become kind of a buzzword, right? So like most treatment centers now say we're trauma informed, but what does that mean, right? So what is trauma? That could be an excellent, and I don't know how much time we want to take on this. I'm I'm free for however long we want to go, but um, trauma, looking at trauma in a much larger way than just something that we would consider to be obvious trauma, like the death of a parent, going to war, um, severe illness. Trauma can be a much larger umbrella. And so for one person, something can be really insignificant. And for another person, it can be a very severe trauma. When I was in kindergarten, I couldn't tie my shoes. And I talk about this all the time. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of funny that I talk about it so often, but it's such a relevant story because seemingly insignificant. And for someone, it might mean nothing, but I can still remember the feeling of the cold floor, the aisle way, the metal desks, the feeling in the air, because I decided I was stupid because I couldn't tie my shoes. And the teacher sent me home with a board with two shoes on it. And I walked home reciting to myself, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. And so sometimes people want to say, oh, what a horrible teacher. Oh, didn't they know better? But the bottom line is, it's not really about the blame. It's like, gosh, what a huge moment for a five or a six-year-old to have. And it was a, a, one of those moments that was very deep for me. So trauma is not the same for everyone. And we want to start asking ourselves, what were those moments when I separated from my true nature? What were those moments that felt too painful for me to be present? What are those moments when I started developing these core false beliefs? Yes, okay. So trauma, that's one of the words. What are the other two? Spiritual disconnection and toxic shame. Ah, yes. Well, we can see spiritual disconnection. Do you have, do you have faith that people will find it again? Um, yes, because it's innate within every one of us, right? We are innate, innately spiritual and we end up on these searches and sometimes it's an outer search for an inner experience, right? And sometimes religion does that and religion can be really wonderful for people and it can also be centered in the mind that it's about a theology or an ideology or a belief system. 
um, when really spirituality is an experience. It's who and what we are. So when I talk about spiritual disconnection, again, it comes right out of my own story that I talked about when I, at age seven, when I disconnected or I believed I disconnected from my true nature and decided all these lies about myself. So spirituality is an experience of our own wholeness, our own um, expansive self. And again, there's a lot of different words for that. So that is really what I mean when I talk about spiritual disconnection. And uh, talking about disconnection, my power has a disconnection. <laughs> my power in our thunderstorm has a disconnection. And toxic shame, share about this in our final closing thoughts here. Toxic shame. Yeah, yeah. And so some people don't like the term toxic shame because they think I'm saying there's toxic shame and shame that's not toxic. And basically, we've evolved in this. I think about, to me, the pioneer of this is John Bradshaw in the 1980s his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. And he actually talked about healthy and toxic shame. Now we call it guilt and shame. That was a very long way of saying, let's talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I believe I've done something wrong. And that gets remedied, if you will, behaviorally. Shame is, I believe I am wrong. And we've been talking about it the whole time. It's the core false belief. It's the energy. It's these core decisions we make about ourselves that then become the operating system, if you will, at which we view the world through. So we continue to experience the world as broken because we believe we are broken. And really everything we've talked about today is talking about how we heal shame. It's not just behavioral, right? So in a lot of the recovery models, for example, there's a focus on making amends, which is important, and it usually only addresses the guilt. I corrected this, I feel better. For some people, if they're carrying a deep sense of shame, I corrected this, I made amends, but I sometimes even feel worse, or I feel, how could I have possibly done this? I'm so damaged, right? And so Again, it's the twofold process of spending dedicated time cultivating a relationship with our true nature, and then pretty much unlearning everything we've ever been taught that's counter to who we really are. Well, again, you're doing a beautiful job in your own journey, and that just makes you a beautiful guide for so many people who need your assistance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so any words of encouragement for those who may be on the path or maybe have someone in their life that needs this assistance? Words of encouragement as we say goodbye. I almost always close with a variation of the same message. And that message is, if no one's told you today, you are a whole and perfect being. You came into the world as an infinite being, and that's the ultimate truth of who you are. So regardless of what has happened, regardless of what you have done, the truth is right there within you. You are an infinite being and you deserve love and connection. So powerful, so beautiful, so supportive, and it changes the world. Thank you for being a change leader in our world, TJ Woodward. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All right. If TJ can help you or your loved ones, please reach out, check out the special offer that's available and his website. We wish you all the love in your heart as you remember your true essence and actually why you came on the planet. Thank you, TJ. And thank you, everyone. Namaste.
Thank you for listening to this quantum conversation and thank you for dancing with us to the cosmic heart. As we raise our own vibration, we raise the vibration of the planet. This show is dedicated to you and all awakening hearts as we are here to shine our bright light and amplify our love. Access all quantum conversations, special offers from our guests, and online healing retreats by visiting AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and from my sacred heart to yours, I honor your magnificent love and light. We leave you now with music from the universe. Music literally created by the universe as musical notes were assigned to mathematical equations. The result is this beautiful music available at AcousticHealth.com. Namaste.